We say good morning. It's a great morning, isn't it? Special day, as every day is, but when God's people come together, it's even better. The best time of the week when God's people come to fellowship together and get around His Word. Um, the other day, there was, this, uh, there was this one guy, and he was just shopping way too long. Been out too long at the Super Center, and uh, he was wrestling with this two-ton cart, and he was looking for a checkout lane. And all the checkout lanes were all full. You know what that's like. And uh, there was just multitudes of people in it. And so he was just wanting one where he could get in where there was at least, uh, not more than, than ten people. He just wanted to get out of the store before the next day. And so he uh, waited, and all of a sudden, uh, a, a miracle happened. Uh, one girl called out for him to get in her lane because the, if there was a, a break right there in that line, and she opened it up. And uh, anyway, uh, he comes in with his semi-truck load of uh, stuff and uh, went in through that lane and he said he felt like it was the Red Sea that was parting, you know, this miracle God made for him. And no sooner had he unloaded half of those two tons uh, when a long line of those genuine 20 items or less shoppers were behind him. And you can imagine what they're thinking. They're very angry. You've been one of those before, and you might have been very angry too. And you know what they start doing? They start counting. <laughs> start counting how many's in there. You've done that before. I've done probably. Yeah, I've done that. I was like, what are they doing? And so he wanted to say he didn't, but he said, "Hey, look, guys. Hey, listen. She motioned me over here. <laughs> she told me to come here, but he said, uh, why drag the checker down with me?'" But anyway, they're all looking at him, and he decided not to give any eye contact to any of them as they were behind him. And uh, by the way, they sold hunting artillery in there too, but uh, he opted for just staying quiet, just being cool about it, trying not to hyperventilate here. You've heard of road rage? I think today there's a new term. I don't know if you've heard it or not, but uh, if, uh, if it's not, uh, it'll probably be in your terminology from here on. Lane rage. You ever heard of that? <laughs> you have? There's such a thing? All right. Well, there's some danger. There's some danger there. Anyway, um, you've heard of shop till you drop. Well, the guy would have been okay with that. But he thought that, uh, oh, shop till someone drops you. And uh, he was scared for his life as he went out to his parking spot. And, uh, of course, people can take the low road sometimes instead of being heroes. Um, the Lone Ranger here gets shoved off for the Lane Rager. And uh, here it goes. It reminds us <laughs> that we must be patient and we must be very loving at all times, not just at church. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Are you already convicted yet? No. <laughs> anyway, um, we think of that. We think of Ephesians 4 2, where it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And so, in addition, patience and love. And that can demonstrate the person of Jesus Christ in our lives. It, it, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. And we want to bring him as a demonstration in the way that we live our lives in. Well, you'd never guess, as we move on into 1 John, we come to another one of those tests again. There's three tests. They keep interweaving. And we have doctrinal tests, and we have a moral tests, you know, the test of uh, obedience and, and such. And then we have the test of love. And we come back to that particular one. Uh, this time it's done with a greater detail. Uh, it's like about the third time that we have ran into this where there's a... Uh, 
a section where John keeps saying, brethren, love one another. And he gives a little bit on it, and then the next time he expands, and this third time he's going to expand one more as he revisits a little bit. And it's like going through a palace, a palace with a lot of rooms, and you go in one room and you go, wow. And you see the chandeliers. This is amazing. It just knocks you out. But you go into the next room, into that palace, and it's even more incredible and uh, awe-inspiring. And you go into the next room, and it's even more than that, and we're moving towards the throne room. And, of course, when you get into the throne room, what do you see? The door opens up and introduces us to the person who is the God of love. That is the most beautiful room. That is the person of Christ. And His supreme morality is God is love. One of the great assurances of being in Christ, as we sang that song, in Christ alone, one of the great assurances of that, and that's what John is doing in this, in this little epistle, is he's assuring us of our salvation. And if you pass these three tests that He continually brings forth one after another, then it can bring assurance to us that we are Christians. Are we obedient? Are we loving to God and our neighbor? And uh, do we confess Jesus Christ as Lord? And do we confess our sins to Him? Those kind of things. That's uh, the test that He's been talking about. If we don't have this characteristic of love, then we fail and we're probably not Christians if we don't have love for one another, right? So we're going to go to another level this morning. We're going to take it up a notch, um, as John does here. What is, what is John pointing to? Something that is called perfect love. Absolute perfect love. And of course we see it in uh, Christ Himself. The first uh, love section is found in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. He says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother, there's a contrast, is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So that was one section that we dealt with and say, okay, good, now we've covered the love section. We were in 1 Corinthians back some time ago. I don't remember when was that, two years ago, a year ago, I don't know. A year ago, 1 Corinthians 13 maybe, right? And we spent a long time in there and, and uh, you say, well, here we go again with this love thing. Oh, it's constantly through Scripture. If you do expository, which we do, you're going to eventually run into that again and all sorts of other doctrines. But it's it's a great doctrine. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. Matter of fact, we always fall short of this love. So you can say, man, I feel real bad. I just don't feel like I've loved God with every ounce of my energy here today, you know? I don't feel like I've been really loving to my neighbor, you know? And uh, that's what can happen as we look at this perfect love. But at the same time, we remember that uh, it's, it's in Christ. It's found in Him. Verse 10, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Here's how it's shown. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. There's the, the test of love, loving brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
And then he uses Cain as an example. Not as Cain, he uses the negative. And that was a passage that we dealt with, was that a couple of weeks ago, right? Does that make sense? Uh, so he shows the evidence of our sonship and our fellowship. And this time he's going to go a little further. Uh, the evidence of the manifestation of the presence of God is found in us. Not only we can uh, be assured of our sonship and our fellowship, but the very presence of God is in us. As we're going to see the Trinity here today in this passage dealing with love. We'll see the Father, we'll see the Son, we'll see the Holy Spirit. And we see that the Holy Spirit resides in us, and that is a proof um, as He resides in us and gives us the power to live this life. So we'll, we'll look at the doctrine, and then we'll see how we're able to do such an impossible thing. When we have doctrine, when we have truth, then, and only then, can we then practice it. We don't start with practice first. We don't start with uh, that kind of thought. We practice, what we do is we see who we are in Christ. We see what He has done, what He is doing. And then, and only then, can we put that into practice. So much today in the evangelical realm, they'll tell you to do this, do that, be good. But the thing is, they don't tell you the power and where this comes from and the very source. So we see the source here in this perfect love section. Uh, it explodes into what I would think is the fullness uh, that is found here in chapter 4. Uh, having correct doctrine is so key. But that's not everything. We know that. It's not sufficient evidence that you're a Christian. If you know a lot of stuff, if you know propitiation, you know justification, you know glorification, sanctification, and uh, you know those grand doctrines, the doctrines of grace. But if you don't have love for one another, I question, everybody should question if that one is a true believer. Right? So if we have love based on doctrine, it proves that we have fellowship and sonship and evidence that we are very sons of God. The manifestation of the life of God is in us. I want you to think about that. The very manifestation of God, His love, is in us, and we are to bear that forth. So let's take a look, see how that works. We're going to start in uh, 1 John 4, and uh, we are at verse 7, and we'll go through verse 12, this section today, Lord willing. And um, let's read His Word. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one is seeing God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. Alright, John says love is from God, it's His very nature. It's, that's where the source is at. And so God is the essence. God is the essence of love. God the Father is emphasized here in the first couple of verses. It doesn't say God the Father, it says God. But you'll see the triune God. And when you're reading through Scripture a lot, especially through the New Testament, 
You'll see where it says God. Then you'll see where you see the Son. And then you'll see the Holy Spirit who abides in us. And that comes quite frequently. And if you look in the book of Ephesians, right off the bat in Ephesians 1, you see in that long section through those first 13 verses, you see where you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. They all act in how we are to respond to God. And knowing that, then we can have the power to do what He tells us to do. Each one of the members here is um, in this section. The very nature of God. The very nature of God demands us to love. Did you know you are demanded to love? Even when you don't feel like it, you don't want to, and there are people you don't really care for, and you don't care if they're Christians or not, you don't care. But we are, are commanded... There's a demand by God that we love because He is love. God is love. This is God's nature. Um, Okay, in the book of John, what have we seen so far? He's protecting the readers from the view that was coming in. It wasn't known as Gnosticism yet, but that's really what it was. It would be um, later on known as Gnosticism. But it's always been around. It goes really back to the lie. (laughs) The lie in the garden. Um, and it dethrones God is really what it does but these people were calling themselves Christians but uh, if they were to take the test they really wouldn't say that Jesus is the one who came in the flesh they wouldn't really be obedient because there was no need to be obedient because the flesh is bad anyway because the flesh is bad I can do whatever I want and get away with it because it's the spirit man who is very important so very spiritual. Well, guess what other test that they fail? They fail the test of love. They didn't really have love for others. Who do you think they had love for? Their selves. That it was a very selfish kind of love that they had. It was not a godlike love. It was not agape. So we see that the Gnostics thought that they knew a lot about God, but actually they didn't. They didn't know the very essence of God, that He is love. So what does John say here? God is love. And you say, I've heard this ever since I've been a little kid. I know that. Um, Why don't we just move on? I know about this God is love. Well, it's correct theology. But the behavior and the conduct of these Gnostic heresies that were coming about, of, of these people who believe that way, showed that their lives were not consistent with what the truth of the Word of God was. Um, they would believe in some things that would be in Scripture, like people today. Uh, but they didn't have a love that comes from God. They, they didn't have that. And if you're uh, not a Christian, uh, you're not going to have that. You can oppose as a Christian, look as a Christian, say all the right things, but if you don't have that love, then uh, we know that kind of love is not coming from God as far as agape love. Uh, that's God-like love. They didn't know His true nature. They didn't know His true nature, which in this instance here that's being emphasized is His love. They didn't know that. Okay, uh, the Gnostics taught about spirit. And we know that God is spirit. That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? You remember the woman of the well, John 4.24. And as he talks to her, and as he gets near the end of the truth that he gives to her, and she says, hey, we worship at this mountain here, and that's the correct one, right? And you worship uh, in Jerusalem. And, and he shows, hey, listen, there is coming a time when you will not worship in a temple. You will worship God because He is spirit. And we worship in spirit and in truth. And so we don't have to have 
all of the little details that go into a grand, marvelous building with the chandeliers and maybe having a little tabernacle up at the front and all the different candles and the nice things that seem so religious. We don't have to have those things because we worship in spirit and truth. We don't have to be in a certain building. That would be the only place to worship. God is spirit. and That's how we can approach Him. We, we approach Him spiritually, don't we? Uh, so we know that. God is spirit. That's found in John 4.24. Uh, we're looking for things that God is, right? God is love. God is spirit. God is light. And we've seen that here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. 100% pure unadulterated light is what God is. Uh, So that's another way to define God is that He is light. He defines it actually. Uh, But in Him, there is not one little speck of darkness whatsoever. Man does not naturally like light. Man hates light. We find that out in John 3 for it exposes their what? Their sin. Their darkness. And so, He is 100% light. God is absolute. And so, why do you have people coming up with one of the most ridiculous fantasy stories of ever when you talk about evolution? In our um, Genesis study on Monday nights, we've been talking, here's truth and here's this crazy story about evolution. How can people even think of that? It really comes down to they're suppressing the truth, as it says in Romans 1. They don't want the truth. John 3 says they don't want their sin to be exposed. God is absolute light. He does expose it. There's another one I think I find very interesting is that God is fire. And you say, what? I've never heard of that one. Well, actually, you probably have. If you look in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, there is an adjective before that uh, that will explain that if you're wondering, what do you mean God is fire? Man, that sounds pretty heavy, doesn't it? Hebrews 12.29, For our God is a consuming fire. God is light. I like that. But this consuming fire, I don't know about that. I don't like that. God is a consuming fire. Well, first of all, the text is dealing with a warning. All of Hebrews is warning. It's warning people who are not Christians ultimately, who think they are, they're... They think they're writing in the middle and He gives them warnings all throughout. And it's very um, serious in His warnings. And so He says, um, our God is a consuming fire. He will judge people. That's a topic of judgment. Uh, So the context is for an unbeliever, but also for believers, He's a fire also. He's a consuming fire. What What do you mean? Well, we're talking about where uh, in Corinthians where he talks about the gifts that we uh, are or we've been given and then we use them and uh, there are rewards. Uh, but he will burn away the dross. He's a fire that will take everything that is not to the glory of God and burn it away. And whatever is left there, which is true faith, which is genuine, that's what's going to enter into the kingdom of God for uh, eternity. The genuine faith. I want you to recognize that God is love, God is light, God is fire, God is spirit. All of those are connected and you cannot separate one from the other. A lot of people would like to say, I like God as love, right? 
But over here, this God is fire thing, and this God is light. I'm not so sure I like that. I, I think I'll throw that God as fire out. And that doesn't matter. You know, I like the God of love. I like the God of the New Testament, you know, people will say, right? And what we're saying here is the character of God, I can't believe in there because I don't like it. Uh, but the thing is, every one of these are connected. Fire and love. It's His very essence. God loves us so much that you know what He's going to do? Us as believers, He's going to purify us by His fire. Uh, absolute light is put on us. We're convicted of sin. And then He takes that sin that really already is paid for. It is done. But that will not go into the kingdom of heaven. Anything that is not of Him. And you know what? For believers, we can take great comfort in this fire because it's always the best thing. God is always good. And everything that He's doing, He knows what He's doing. And it's always right. And it's always perfect. And He knows exactly how much heat to put upon the believer. He knows how much heat. Can you expose me? Excuse me for a second. I'm afraid we're going to have a great noise like... <laughs> my guitar. <laughs> I like that gold top. I don't want to see it be landing on the floor. But God is always love. God is also fire. It's always the best thing for us. And all He's doing is eliminating all this junk out of our lives. Praise God. Is that good? Aren't you glad that God is love? God is fire. God is light. God is spirit. Uh, his fire with His love, it's all together. They're equal. They connect. He con- And this is amazing what Alistair Begg said. He consumes us without destroying us. I like that. He consumes us without destroying us because He knows exactly what we need and how much that fire needs to be turned on and how much to be turned back And that's what He's doing in our lives. He's bringing these trials and all these tasks to show what is genuine, as it says in the book of James. Now, the manifestation of God's love. We're just talking about general love here for a moment. And then we'll get into the love that He has for His children. And I want you to know, we're still in 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 7, where it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. That's where we're at. He's talking to the beloved. Who's that? That's us. John addresses the beloved a lot. Oh man, he's a great brother in Christ, isn't he? Let us love one another because God is love. Uh, okay, if you look at common grace, how many of you heard of common grace? It's a term that's used throughout in the Reformed theology. You hear it a lot, a common grace. It's used throughout the evangelical realm. Uh, there's also the compassion that God has. There's also the warnings in the Bible that He has for all people. Uh, every every individual, and it even extends to where he has a, the gospel to go into all the world and preach the gospel, preach it, preach it to all. You know, um, we have a call to do that. We're all commanded to bring that gospel forth to the lost. Whatever happens with uh, them, as far as God is concerned, that's up to God. But we we're to give the truth out. So first of all, common grace is just a general love for everybody. God has that in that sense. He reigns upon the just and the unjust. The sun shines upon the just and the unjust. He uh, treats people well in giving them breath and life. You got up this morning and had uh, physical um, awareness. 
to be able to put on your clothes and be able to do all that, even jumped in your car and drove over here and here we are. God has empowered us to do all that. Isn't God good? And we forget about all that stuff because we're so busy thinking, what do I got to do next? You know, it's busy Sunday morning, you know, whether it be the kids and ourselves just trying to get going. And so He provides, though, for the people, for their needs. He, he does that for believer, unbeliever. Uh, it's called common grace. In Titus 3, 4, it's kind of a love for all mankind. Matthew 5 says to love your enemies. Um, <clears throat> that's a hard one to do, but how can we love unless God also with His power is loving through us to do that? Why would He command us to do something that He can't? But there is, and we've talked about this many times, there is a discriminating love also. But right now, we're looking at a non-discriminating love, just a general love real quick. Compassion, God has compassion. He withholds His judgment upon people that He could consume right now and send them to all uh, eternal hell. Right at the moment. But He withholds His judgment. As He did in the Old Testament. He withheld His judgment on Israel. And warned them for hundreds and hundreds of years. Sent prophets, men of God to them. Uh, He even gave warnings even to the Gentiles. Uh, God is compassionate. Uh, He gives warnings over and over again. Uh, the gospel is brought to the ends of the earth, the light that uh, should, could light every man into the world in, in some sense. Um, it's known by every man as far as creation. They're without excuse, Romans 1 says. It's, it's on them. But then there is the discriminating love. And that's the perfect love. The absolute perfect discriminating love that He has for His own dear children. That's us. He has a love for us that He doesn't have for all the rest of creation. His own children. Uh, it's, it's not a temporal love like the other ones, like the common grace and such. It's an eternal love. Now, it's unconditional. It's not based upon what we do. God didn't choose you because you were really pretty cool. You were good. God didn't do that at all. Matter of fact, what did He see? Saw nothing but wickedness and evil and, and sin. Deadness is what he saw, and yet he loved you. We did not love God first, he loved us, right? As it says later on. I think this is interesting. In John 13, 1, and this is the Gospel of John, this is the same writer here that remembered through the Holy Spirit that Jesus washed their feet the night before he was going to be crucified. The very night he's going to be arrested, he's there washing their feet. Verse 1, that's all we're going to do. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, his own, who were in the world. Look at this. He loved them to the end. Now that can mean all the way up to that time. All the way up to he comes back. But there's a word there is teleos. It's related to that word. And you remember when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, or teleos, it's related to that. Same thing. It can mean bring to perfection, to completion, to maturity. To bring to completion a perfect love He has for His children. At that very moment and all through that time, Jesus had a perfect love for His disciples. That's amazing. That's for us. God's presence was in their lives. So that's that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Incredible. Uh, I like Ephesians 2, verse 4. I like Ephesians 1. I like Ephesians 2. 
You guys like that? Oh, I love those. Those are two famous chapters. But in Ephesians 2 4, but God, after He's condemned all of mankind, they're all sinners and they're all wicked and they need to be regenerated. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of what? Of His great love. Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. His great love. Have you ever thought that God has a great love for you? I mean, a perfect love in every aspect. Boy, that just should floor us. Perfect. Um, Now, we go back to 1 John. And we see in chapter 4 that we are moving on. We're still in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God. If you're a Christian, you love. And if you do that, it shows that you are born of God. Oh, I like this part. It means we partake of the very nature of God. What is God's nature? He said earlier is God is love. Did you know that one becomes a Christian doesn't start developing love? They have God's love. They partake of that. To be born of God is to have His life in you. To be born of God means we are in His family. We're in His family. We're born of God. Begotten. Did you know that when uh, children, little babies, are their first born, that grandma and grandpa come in and say, oh, He looks just like me. Or looks just like dad. Looks just like mom. And that really shouldn't surprise us. Although sometimes you can say, I don't know where they get that. <laughs> but, but, you know, we still say, but sometimes they really do look like daddy or mama or the grandparents. Well, of course, they should. They should look like them in some way. So it might be an eye, it might be one part, but there's something there. We're children of them. We're born of them. We're born, you know, the, the genes come through there. Well, when you're born spiritually, you take on the characteristics of God. Now, there's some that are transferred, attributes of God, and transferred to us, and there are obviously other ones that are not, which, you know, we are not omniscient. We don't get that character trait <coughs> transferred to us. That's non communicable attribute. Don't you like that? Don't you like seminary? <laughs> But there are communicable attributes, and we get many of those. And I got a feeling the ladies have covered a lot of these on their Tuesday studies, which is dealing with knowing God. I'm not so sure. Did you guys study loving God this week? Was that your topic, right? At last week. Interesting, isn't it? I guess there's another dose of that. So you got to live this the same stuff. I think Packer might have even been in this text. Was he in First John four, verse seven through on? I want to tell you. Christians think a lot alike too because of the same thing. I got to tell you about Janice. She does a lot of our um, um, congregational responses and uh, and quotes. And Carolyn had her do some quotes as she had in the study the other day, and it was a quote from John Owen, and then uh, the other one we'll read um, later. Uh, but the, the John Owen quote you'll find in your bulletin on the very top, or we had it on on the screen here. Now I I start to make my bulletins on Monday. Uh, Monday afternoon, I usually have that. So I already had that. I didn't know what uh, Janice was going to do Tuesday. But Tuesday, she had a quote, and Carolyn thought it was really good. And uh, she had her uh, put those uh, on um, 
sheet as an insert for your bulletin. Do you have those before you? And uh, I think it's fascinating that the second quote is from John Owen and the very last sentence is the very one that I had put up up there. Now, how many quotes are there on love? Obviously, there are not very many because why would I come up with the same thing she had? She had no idea that I was going to put that up there either. But anyway, I think that's fascinating. Um, but we're in a family of God. We think a lot alike, don't we? And, and I have others that I say, oh, we, we think alike. We're thinking the same thing. How many times does that happen, right? So anyway, um, we partake of God's nature. Uh, we've got to go to Second Peter 1, verse 4. Uh, just before 1 John. 2 Peter 1, 4. You've got to like this. Oh, you got to love it. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. What's divine? What's God's nature? We are partakers. We're born of God. We get characteristics or nature of God as soon as we become born again. You say, well, I sure don't feel like I should. The fruit of the Spirit is love. At the very first one, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You know, you have all of those. The only thing is, sometimes we don't manifest it outwardly, but we have it here and shame on you because you don't manifest it. <laughs> I want to show that fruit, right? But we don't always do that. and We, we blow the first one. And when you blow the first one, then the other ones kind of are blown too. And so the fruit doesn't look like it's there, but if you're a Christian, you have every part. When you were born, you had all your arms, you had your legs, you had your eyes. It wasn't that they were developed as time went on. Oh, that's okay, I'll get my eyes when I get two years old. Now there's the deal with the teeth, you know, we know about that, and you get baby teeth, you take them out. But you don't, you don't replace your ears. Oh, those were my baby ears. Wait till you see my adult ears come in, you know. And we get all that, don't we? So we're born of God, we have everything we need. It's just the thing is, there's going to be some things that are going to develop, and they're going to grow. And uh, so we need the milk. We need the Spirit of God to do that. Okay. Uh, first John, we've got to move on, because we're still in that seventh verse. And it seems like we're always stuck on that for the first 45 minutes, and the rest of it we have to move through. Okay, ready? Uh, everyone who loves is born of God and what? Knows God. Do you know God? Well, if you're a Christian, you know God. You know your dad. Uh, and we've already seen that in verse 2, or John 2, chapter 2, where you have uh, the little children, and then you have the ones who are like the young men, and then you have the fathers, right? But they all know God. The little children go, Dada. They know, they know their father. They know Abba, right? Dada. But um, we know God. John 17.3, John wrote this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the greatest prayers in all the Bible. Uh, maybe the greatest because this is uh, a prayer for the disciples and it's a prayer for us. This is incredible. He first starts praying for himself that his glory would be seen again, that he would be given back to him like he had before he came to earth. And in verse 3, he says, and this, is eternal life that they may know you. Knowing God, that is life. That is what we're here about. If you know God, you will give glory to Him. What's the chief end of man? 
Or if I God, join Him forever. That's life. Life is glorifying God. This is eternal life that you may know Him. When you know Him, this only true God and Jesus Christ whom He sent, you know a great deal. You know personally God. A real relationship. Not knowing about, but knowing Him. He first knew us. He brought us into the family. And now we're related to Him. We've been adopted and we get all the rights, Romans 8 says. Incredible. So, the first reason we covered number one here, the reason that we are to love is that the nature of God is the very life that we possess. You possess the nature of God. The very nature of God. You are not a little God, and you're not God's, but you have that characteristic. Now, moving on. Number two. This is about... By love. Why are we to love? Well, uh, God revealed His Son. And in His Son was love seen here on earth. We saw the perfect demonstration of love. You see it through His Word. Would have His love because He manifested in His Son. God's love is uncaused. That means there wasn't something about you that he really liked. Man, that guy, you know, he's got a lot of problems, but, you know, he's going to believe in me. And because he believes in me, I'm going to choose him. That is a lie. And that is tossed about in the evangelical circles today. He saw that you were going to choose him right on down through the annals of time. Say, Dennis, there you go again. <laughs> That's what this is about. It's pointing to the fact that he first loved us, right? Uh, we, did, we didn't love Him at all. Matter of fact, we were what? Enemies. And we hated Him. We were not any good. No, we're hitting in the Gospel. Right? A man's love for a woman, or a woman for a man, is a caused love. That love is caused. I mean, there's something about them that they, they chose them. They wanted to be with them. The, the, the man saw the woman and he decided that, hey, that's the woman for me. Wow. And she says, back off, Jack. I don't want any part of But let's say there's an attraction. There was something about each one that caused them to want to get married and to live and the rest of their lives here on earth with each other. And they, but God, He didn't do it that way. He just loves. He picks out the ones He wants to love for no reason. Uh, the mercy was involved there, believe me, because we were all headed to hell. You might as well see it that way. That's the way Spurgeon always said it. Everybody's on the way and He decides to pick out some uh, because that's what He wants to do. He didn't love you because you took the initiative. When He first called Abram, was Abram looking for God? No, he's a pagan. He was out there and just, you know, living like everybody else was. But God chose him, and uh, we know out of Abram grew a whole nation and a race there. But he did it. It was uncaused. God's expression is ultimately seen at the cross, though. That's how God reveals His love. Can you think of a better picture of love than the cross? We look back at the cross. The highest demonstration. He manifested His perfect love through His Son who loved perfectly. Um, 
I think of John 3, 14-16. Sometimes that John 3, 16 is just worn out. But it is a great text. John 3, 14... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, like on the cross, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The ones that He grants that faith and repentance to and are regenerated, they're the ones who believe and that's the ones who God ultimately has a discriminative type love for. And He loves those people different than the way that He loves other people. It's just like when a husband and wife are married, they love each other in a lot different way than that husband would love his neighbor over there that's living by him. He's supposed to have a love for him, but he doesn't love the same kind of way, does he? That's what God does. He has a different kind of love. And I know a lot of people would be highly offended that while He loves everybody in all the world and has loved them completely the same way He always has uh, with everybody else. But that's not really true. There is a love. We showed the general love, but there's a love that He has for His own. And John 17 goes to show that forth. In Romans 5 it says that He has just taken this love and just poured it out, lavished it upon us. So that we, we have that love. Um, incredible. It's all revealed at the cross. He says His only begotten Son. We saw that in in 1 John. We see it in in, uh, John 3. Uh, This was His only Son. Uh, This is the Son He gave. There is no greater gift to give than His Son. His gift. God gave His Son for our sins. First of all, who did God... uh, uh, Actually, Jesus Christ. Who did Christ really die for? So we died for us. He died for our sins. I would say, correct. But let's get more perfect with that. Who did Christ die for? God, as R.C. Sproul puts forth. God is the one that He died for because He was commanded by God with this great plan to do this for us. And it is for us. And we, we claim it. We say, thank God for that. But who did He die for? It was the Father, ultimately. And then as He dies for us, it was given for you. And you think of that commercial. It's terrible. I hope this is not anti-spiritual. But remember, this bud's for you. Well, this Jesus Christ is for you. This is for you. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that great to be thinking on? Wow. This was His own Son. I, I know, we know this. We've heard it a million times if we haven't heard it two million times. But we can't hear enough. That word begotten, the only begotten is monogenes, which means unique. He's the unique Son. There is no one like Him. In John 1.14, John wrote that too, didn't he? We're going back from 1 John to John a lot. But in John 1.14, most of you probably know this, and the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten, the only monogenes, one gene, unique 
of the Father full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. No one's seen God. Ultimately, God is Spirit, right? Can't see Spirit. But there is this Son who He gave who was seen. And He declared the Father. He came to do the Father's will. That was the ultimate. I came to do the Father's will. Will the Father. Uh, anyway, the only begotten, right? Oh, 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 oh. First John, back, 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 uh, four. Did you know we're already into a big term? Let's look at this as we've gone through this. We're in verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That's how God manifested. He proved it. He demonstrated. He showed it. Brought it forth. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. We just covered that, right? That we might live through Him. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. Right? We are in Christ. All throughout the New Testament. That's our position. We're in Christ. Now, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. He sent His Son, we've already seen that, to be the, oh, here's the word, I love this, I love this, propitiation. Let's say that together. Propitiation. Let's say it loud. Propitiation. Oh, yeah, yeah, I like that. I love that. This is great doctrine. Right in the midst of this great section on dealing with practice, but it's doctrine because here's the Father and here's the Son, here's the Holy Spirit, we have the triune God, and so we're trying to get great doctrine into every element, and then we'll show the practice, and it's all kind of intertwined, that's what John does a lot, propitiation, how do we get into this great doctrine, John just introduced it, propitiation, helasmos, what does that mean, to placate, to satisfy to satisfy God's justice, to satisfy God's wrath, its satisfaction. As we're dealing with substitute, we'll get into that a little bit more. Let's just look at some texts that use this word that is so good. Propitiation. And a lot of translations today, I think even in the NIV, they don't put propitiation. You can say, well, I can understand. That's a hard seminary word. No, it's a beautiful word. It's been taken out because there have been some things that have happened to the cross. And um, the atonement is totally mistaken in much of the evangelical realm today. Propitiation is beautiful. Look at First John two two. And He Himself, this is Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. John has used this before. John has used this. Now I'm not going to go to the next phrase because we took a whole message dealing with that. So we're going to move on. You ready? Okay. Now, the Hebrew writer, which is uh, people banner about who wrote Hebrews, but let's go to chapter 9, verse 5. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The mercy seat the mercy seat is related to propitiation. You say, Dennis, I didn't see propitiation there. Um, go back to Leviticus, chapter 16. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 16, verse 15. 
And this is where this took about in the time of the um, nation of Israel. And God put forth, consecrated a way that they would worship Him, had the tabernacle, and then had feasts. There was going to be a day of atonement. You have the high priest. The high priest would be the only one that would go in to the Holy of Holies. Nobody could go there, only high priest. And that was once a year, the Day of Atonement. And when he go back there, he would carry uh, blood that was sacrificed from your animal. And then he would put that on the mercy seat and that would be covering his sin. And he'd also have the blood and he'd come in there and put it on the mercy seat and that was for the people. And that was his chosen people of Israel. And so now that blood was to atone for them. That means that when the high priest entered in there, put the blood there, God was appeased. God was satisfied. God was now pleased with what had been done. The sacrifice. The blood is there. Uh, It's to appease His holy requirements for sin. Now, that sounds like pagan-type religion because they would talk about appeasing the gods. Well, here is where one way that God, the true God, set forth what the true sacrifice would look like. It's not the sacrifice that took away the sins, but it pointed to the cross that ultimately Christ would take away the sins. So it was good for till then, but it really wasn't the sacrifice. But God was satisfied with that. It was the place of propitiation, the place of satisfaction, the mercy seat. Full and complete propitiation was done whenever Christ sent His Son, or God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, here on earth and He went to the cross and propitiation was made as He shed His own blood. He was the Lamb. He was the High Priest. He can say amen because man, this is propitiation. This is incredible. He is the atonement. That's what all this is related to. The atonement. And He died for His own. He died for the elect. John Owen has a great work called um, dealing with the death of death and the death of Christ. And he puts forth all the verses that show that he died for his own. He died for the elect. That's who he died for. Sin had to be dealt with judicially. God demanded from a perfect, righteous person, a holy man, God, 100% God, 100% man, there we get the two natures of Christ, and He exhausted the wrath of God when He took all of our sins on Himself. And at that very moment, somehow, someway, in a mystery way, the righteousness of Christ was put on us. And our sin was put on Christ. And that's called the great exchange. God's wrath was exhausted. He was completely, fully, totally satisfied. And Jesus said, it is finished. The atonement and every work was done. We were paid for. People like Hitler, who never were Christians, their sins weren't paid for. If they were paid for, then they could do whatever they wanted. It was paid for. It's done. They go into heaven too. But their sins were not paid for, but ours were. He put His wrath upon His own Son. And this is called supreme love. 
This is the grandest display of love that can ever be seen. James Denny, in his book, The Death of Christ, which Martin Lloyd-Jones says is probably one of the most instrumental books in the understanding of Calvary. Does that pique your interest? Can I read a couple of sentences? You ready? If Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's good, it's got to be good, right? <laughs> it's profound. Note the resounding paradox of this verse. That God is at once loving and wrathful. Did you catch that? And the wrath of God was unleashed at the cross. And His love provides the propitiation which averts His wrath from us. <laughs> his wrath. We don't ever, we'll ever have to face His wrath, folks. Never again will we ever have to worry about the wrath of God on us. So far from finding any kind of contrast between love and propitiation, the apostle can convey no idea of love to anyone except by pointing to the propitiation. Can I explain that for you? James Denny says. He's saying that Paul couldn't describe the love of God without using the word propitiation. John had to put that down there. Paul had to do that. Other writers. Because that's what it's all about. On the cross, Jesus took my pain, took my punishment. And that's the great backdrop. All of our sin. It's as black and dark as can be. And that's the backdrop for the light of Jesus Christ comes to the cross. And that's where you see the greatest display of light. The greatest display of love. The Spirit of God was working there. The greatness of us was described right there. Does that make God's love look great? Love and wrath was right there and we never took that wrath. It was put on Christ instead of. And that's substitutionary instead of. It's called the substitutionary atonement. How about... The propitiatory, substitutionary atonement. How about the penal, propitiatory, substitutionary atonement? It's penal in that our sin was taken away and He took the punishment. Did you know that there are many people in the body of Christ, I kid you not, will say, no, it was not substitutionary and it was not penal in that He was setting an example of how He loved us. But it didn't. God wouldn't ever demand that kind of payment that His Son would die on the cross. I kid you not, folks. That is much of the doctrine that is preached in the church today. And it's sad. The, the whole idea of the atonement is blown away when you have such man-centered gospel preaching. Now, we have application here. Oh, boy, we've got to move on. We've got one more verse. You ready? This is the best part, though. This is application. You ready? We're, we're not right at 3, but we're going to be, and it's going to be quick. First uh, John 3.16. Um, we're in chapter 4, but let's look there. And you've got to hang on. We're going to be riding fast. First John 3.16. Pay attention. Here we go. By this, we know love because He laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There it goes. Here's what Christ did, and He says, here's what you do. Now, because of this, here's the doctrine, here's what you do. Because Christ did it, now you can do it. We've been given the capacity with the very nature of God in us, dwelling in us, to be not only a model for us, but the very power. Why?
why wouldn't we want to practice this love? When we look at Christ at the cross, wouldn't we want to love the unlovely? The person that we really don't care for, wouldn't we want to do that? Love is our testimony. Number three, it's, it's one verse, and I'm not going to do this one verse like we did for 40 minutes on verse 7. But he says, no one has seen God at any time. Does that bother you? And say, what does he say that for? I'll also wonder, okay, he throws this in. We're talking about love, and now he just says, no one has seen God at any time. Well, John has said that before. It must be pretty dear and, and near to him. Uh, why does he say this? Just because we love one another, how are people going to know him? This is the idea. How are people going to know His power and glory if no one can see Him? How about that? Is that even better? How is anybody going to know His love, His power, His glory, the greatness of Him if they can't see Him? Well, John 1.18 explained that. And we read that earlier. It's Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, John said. But then there was Jesus Christ who came in the flesh manifested the very glory and power. He is truth. And He is life. He's everything. And He was here. He walked here and said, well, He's not walking here today and how can people see Jesus? Well, that's where we come in. This is, this is where we come in. God is not seen. Christ is no longer seen on the earth. But He puts Himself on display where? In us. He's putting Himself on display in this tabernacle. In this temple. So when the world looks on us, what do they see? They say, well, I probably don't see much. Mm. They should see the person of Christ. God lives in us. The very nature of God, His love is in us. Uh, John 13.35, we don't have to turn there. The unseen God becomes seen in the love of believers. That's how people are going to know Him. Okay, I'm going to close with this. Here's the application. This is going to be hard, folks. This is going to be tough. It's a challenge. Because all of us fail here, and I'm not picking on you. You say, Dennis, you must, you must know what's in my mind, right? No, I don't. I don't have any idea. I remember that. But I want to tell you, I want to challenge you. Does anybody smell that barbecue yet? <laughs> I have to do this. Are you ready? We have to get the application. It's going to be very quick, about a minute. Ready? Do you want it? Well, you're going to get it anyway. God's love is made complete in us, right? It's perfected. It's already there. Okay. Do we love the unlovely? The ones who really don't deserve your love? Uh, remember us? We, we really didn't deserve anything. Remember that? Do we love the ones who are different than us? Do we accept the people who are different from us? That do things that really irritate us? Do we really love them? Are we afraid of others when they just don't seem to fit in? Be honest with yourselves. Come on. Sometimes there's people that just don't seem to fit with us and I'm not going to make an effort to say anything to them because I don't want them to think that I even like them. Right? We're afraid. We're afraid of people that don't seem to be like us. They're different. Do we truly have a love for the orphans and the widows? As James talks about. Do we really want to take care of those people who can't take care of themselves? Do we think less of others 
and more higher than other people, even though we would never admit that. But, you know, hey, listen, I... I don't know. I just I'd better not be seen with them. They're just not cool. They're they're less than me. That's really what we're saying. We'd never say that. We think we're a little bit higher than others. And what does Jesus say or Paul say in Philippians? Esteem others more than yourselves. We really have to do something that is against our flesh. Our own nature is done. It's gone. It's dead. The only thing is we're still in the flesh. We're incarcerated in the flesh. And when we do that, we fight the supernatural with the natural. And we try to act like that old man. And we don't have that kind of love that manifests sometimes. It's easy to love the people that are like us. But what about the people who are not like us? It has to be love of God. It's in our hearts. It's through Christ-like lives of Christians who are Spirit-filled, who are filled with the agape love of Jesus. And it's demonstrated perfectly through the person of Christ. It doesn't matter what you say with your mouth. You say, yes, I love all of people. But what are we doing with our lives? Are we really loving others? What a challenge. And Alistair Begg, I thought, came forth with something with a, that's a word picture. And I mean, it's literally a word picture. We, are you ready for this? If you don't catch anything else I said today, catch this because it caught me. I thought, this is great. We are an audio, video presentation of God in a dying culture. I'm going to say it again. We are an audio video. We're a video presentation of who God is. Our lives. The way we walk individually and the way that we walk as a church. We are a presentation to a culture out there that is dead. And what's our mission? To give those people this message of this truth. And you don't have to use the word propitiation. You can show what Christ did and desire for them to have a belief in that. Love originated in God. Love was manifested in the Son. Love is seen in His people. Let's pray.